Misfits. Welcome back to the Misfits and Mysteries podcast. We are your weekly podcast for all things weird and wacky from Bigfoot and aliens to psychology and history and everything in between. We are your hosts, Emmy and Steve. So Steve, what's up? Not that much. I was up in Vermont for the weekend, which is nice. I heard you're vaccinated now. I did get vaccinated. Got my first Pfizer shot. What are you playing with? Are those knives? Oh, those are your glasses. Knives. I don't know. It kind of like chopsticks or like really thin so, butter knives. So I have these really cool triangle shaped glasses. I have a lot of cool sunglasses. Look at these John Lennon lenses. Nice. So fancy. I need to buy myself a real pair of sunglasses because I don't have any. My pair is broken. Yeah. Sunglasses are one of those things I feel like I forget about for like six months and then I come back when it's summer i'm like a where the fuck did those go b did they ever exist (laughs) mine are usually in my car because i pretty much only wear sunglasses when i'm driving i wear sunglasses all the time in the summer but i'm very particular about them it's funny that sunglasses are a summer thing because if you think about it you actually need sunglasses more in the winter because the sun reflects off the snow is so much stronger than any of the sun you get in the winter it just in the summer it like actually hurts your eyeballs i disagree the sun off the snow is blinding i don't know it doesn't get me as bad (laughs) or maybe you just convince yourself it doesn't because well i also i mean we both do live in a part of the world where it's never sunny in the winter it's always cloudy that is true it is usually cloudy in new york in the winter (laughs) the town that i am from was rated one of the top 10 most depressing cities in America. And one of the reasons why is because it's one of the least sunny places in the country. It's always happy. I understand that. Depressing cities in America, like that's... That's pretty brutal. Big bummer. But anyways, guys, we have a super exciting episode this week. Yeah, I'm so excited for this. We have Dr. Emily Zarka from PBS Monstrum on the show. And she was amazing. We had so much fun. We're going to have to have her on again at some point in the future. Because honestly, an hour recording was not nearly enough time to ask even a fraction of all of our questions. Yeah. Steve and I got off the phone call and we were like, A, Dr. Zarka is so fucking smart. B, I have so many questions that I wanted to ask that we didn't have time for. So yeah. Particularly relating to zombies. So we ain't even really scratched the surface. I mean, we covered so much stuff, but honestly, we just didn't even get anywhere near as much as I'd like to. So that's coming later in the episode, but stay tuned for that. That was an incredible interview. She is so smart. She knows so much more about the stuff that we talk about than we ever could dream of. (laughs) And Emmy introduced her to the squonk. Yes. And She gave me an idea for the topic that I'm going to talk about today. What are you talking about today? I'm talking about the Mononongle. Ooh. It is a female monster, not a cryptid, I wouldn't say, but a monster who's kind of vampire-ish. And I'll tell you Mm -hmm. more later. All right. Do you know about the uh, McGuire Air Force Base space alien? I do not. So that's an interesting story. We're hopefully going to try and I'm not sure if he's still alive. So when I say we're hopefully trying, I mean, I'm trying to figure out if this guy's dead or not, which is going to be the biggest limiting factor if we can get him on the show. 
but this is a guy who has a pretty credible actual firsthand experience with an alien on an air force base when he was in the military. So if it turns out that he's not dead, we will try and get him on the show. But the problem is his name is George Filer, I believe it is. And apparently there are a lot of Georges in his family and I'm not sure which iteration he is. There's like seven. There's a lot of obituaries in the same part of New Jersey. And I have no idea which one's dead and which one's alive. And the tricky thing is he's famous enough that a lot of his content is all over the internet, but he's not famous enough to have a Wikipedia that can fact check whether or not he's still living. So it's a process. I did find his email and send it to him, but who knows if that's going to even get to anyone. How old would he be? He'd be 84. Okay. I mean, he's still active in a lot of alien documentaries and stuff. So it seems like he has enough with it. Yeah. Actually, if any of you guys happen to know if he's dead or alive or happen to know how to contact him, because he's famous enough that you might, please email us or DM us or something. George, are you out there? So some announcements before we start. I actually put out my first guest blog for the Velocipaster. You should check out that episode with uh, Brendan Steer. I'll put a link to that in the bio of the episode. Also, I wrote the blog for ZZ's Employer for B-Movies. It's a great blog that pretty much I'd say is one of the largest catalogs of B-Movies I've ever seen. A lot of them aren't necessarily like low-budget horror comedy, but just in general low-budget movies. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there you might find. And I'm also going to plug the site's author, Max Gunsler. He has two new books out. We're just going to link those in the bio. So check that out. Also, per usual, check out our website, misfitsandmysteries.com. All right, so let's get into the episode. All right. So now we're going to talk about the man who I'm hoping is still living, as we referenced before. And if you happen to know any information about Air Force Major George Filer and whether or not he's still around, please Email us, misfitsmysteries at gmail.com. If you know how to contact him, that'd be incredible. Or on our social media, search Misfits and Mysteries, you'll find it. It's a little different. I'm reading from an article because the article is mostly quotes. I didn't really take notes because I didn't really feel like copying and pasting like okay. something that someone else already kind of wrote for me. Yeah. <laughs> Just for some background, there's a military <laughs> base in Fort Dix, New Jersey, which is kind of near the Pine Barrens. I actually found this story because I was looking up something about the Jersey Devil. Originally, I'd try and find another funny cryptid attack story or Jersey Devil story. And then I found something wildly different. So, okay. You're yeah. looking for another hand in the hand car in window the My type God. story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to waste her time with that, but maybe next time we'll have to bring that one up to Dr. Yeah. Marco <laughs> and get her opinions on some of the more outlandish cryptid sightings or monster attack stories the bigfoot in the trench yeah bigfoot in the trench probably a drunk guy check out those episodes they were funny so after midnight on january 18th 1978 an army military police officer at the neighboring fort Dix was chasing an odd low-flying spacecraft through the pine barrens and the craft stopped at one point and started to hover the headlights of the officer's vehicle captured a weird creature is maybe four feet tall with dull colored skin, long arms, long head, and big black eyes. It's what's called a gray, said Filer. The officer panicked and fired five rounds from his 45 into the thing. And it scrambled and either climbed over or crawled under the fence that separated the two bases, Filer said. In the early hours of that bitterly cold winter morning, the thing was found dead near a hangar by a runway apron on McGuire's side of the fence. 
two men found it, an Air Force security guard and New Jersey State Police officer, who the guard brought onto the base after the shots were fired and the search ensued. So this is Filer talking. My job was to brief the generals every morning. Briefings are like giving them the morning's news, only it's news that's classified. Filer arrived on the Air Force base at 4 a.m., which was his usual time. But something was strange. He saw flashing lights of emergency vehicles near the runway. Gate guards who usually waved him through stopped him and asked him for his ID. When he got to his office, the base was buzzing with wild rumors and a sergeant took him aside. He said, quote, an alien was shot dead on the runway. I said, you mean an alien, like a Mexican alien? He said, no, no. This thing's from, you know, outer space. They want you to brief General Thomas Sadler. I said, it's a joke, right? Sadler doesn't have much of a sense of humor. <laughs> oh my God. So this guy's job was he gets out of the base. Apparently someone had shot and killed an alien, which he has seen, right? And his job is to be like, okay, you got to go tell the general who's in charge here that we shot and killed the alien on our base. He's like, um, and I mean, it, make, it makes sense. His first thought's like, uh-oh, does that mean we just like killed a human, a quote unquote illegal human? Or... Did we just shoot an alien from outer space? And that's neither are good options. No, neither are good. One is a legal nightmare. The other is like, you're lying, like you buffoon. Or like humanity is fucked. Yeah, exactly. So Filer began making calls inquiring about an intruder shot and killed on base. Quote, I called the wing command post. They verified. I called security police. They verified. They said there is what they think is some sort of alien being dead on our runway. A C-141 flew in from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and took the thing away, Filer said. He wrote his report for General Sadler, who was then in charge of the 21st Air Command, but Filer was told to stand down after a senior officer, disheveled and unshaven after a night spent at the runway scene, beat him to it. Quote, one thing I never forgot was the air traffic controller saying they had been inundated with UFO settings that night, he said. Rumors leaked. UFO enthusiasts have debated what's known as the, quote, space alien McGuire incident. So this guy rolls up to his normal job at 4 a.m. And his job is literally just to brief the general. That's his morning job. He's basically the news source. And instead, it's like, yeah, we just shot an alien from outer space. It's bodies on the runway currently. Go tell the general about this. What happened? Like, they just picked up the alien and, like, covered it up and... So according to him, so people from that Dayton Air Force Base flew in, scooped up the body and took it to wherever they were holding it. And no one knows what happened. Yeah. Ooh, that's scary. I know. If he's still around, I would love to get George on the podcast. I just want to hear him retell the story, you know? you imagine just having a normal day? You think you're going to come in, have to tell the general about, you know... Maybe a airplane's wing fell off. Yeah. <laughs> and instead, we just shot a man from outer space. So yeah, the we police officers was panicked animal. and fired like six rounds into this alien. <laughs> oh my God. That's the story of the McGuire space alien, as it's called. That's very interesting. It is. And actually, something that I thought of after the fact, I would have loved to get Dr. Z's take on aliens and folklore. Cause I think one of the things that's interesting that she brought up with folklore, I don't want to spoil things too much is that it's something that everyone sort of buys into, but everyone also knows is fake. Mm -hmm. I was wondering is what extent are aliens folklore? If 
I mean, I think aliens are real. Like, I genuinely believe aliens are real. But we don't believe that they look like little green people. Yeah, that's true. I'd be curious to get her take on aliens as folklore. I mean, they're a huge part of pop culture even. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into our awesome interview with Dr. Emily Zarka from PBS Monstrum. Hey, Misfits. We are back with a super special guest. Today we have Dr. Emily Zarka on with us. Steve and I are huge fans of her YouTube videos. She is the host for Monstrum, which is an online series with PBS on YouTube. And she's also co-written and hosted a documentary for PBS about zombies. So she's awesome and super knowledgeable about all the things that Steve and I pretend to know about. So welcome, Dr. Zarka. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to other like-minded people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. I actually didn't know what the Mothman was until I watched your episode on it. And I do a podcast about cryptids. So, (laughs) you know. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, the Mothman I'd only heard about sort of tangentially, right? And in pop culture before we actually filmed. That was our first mini documentary and our first on location shoot for Monstrum. So yes, I had the chance to learn about Mothman right there in Point Pleasant, (laughs) West Virginia. Oh my God. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about Monstrum and what you do there? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the creator, writer, and host of Monstrum, which is a show that looks at monster history as human history. So every episode focuses on one specific monster from across the globe. I like to say that we don't just do white people monsters. And (laughs) I do my best to trace the origin of that being that creature through archival work, museums, literature. So the research takes a lot of time, but I truly do enjoy it. And then we condense it all down into an episode that's easily digestible. And we also have an amazing illustrator, Samuel Allen, who we worked together to come up with our version of what we think the monster looks like. So there's some original illustrations of monsters in every episode, which is truly a joy. And in addition to Monstrum, I'm a professor and a literature scholar and I focus on the gothic. So monsters and horror, just every aspect of my life at this point. That's awesome. So so can you talk a little bit about how you got into this? It's just such an interesting thing, especially from an academic lens. Yes. I still get a lot of pushback actually, which is interesting inside academia, but I grew up on horror and sci-fi, both on screen and in books. I remember some of my earliest memories were watching, you know, terrible sci-fi movies and horror movies with my mom. And, you know, I saw Salem's Lot when I was around like eight. I was watching Night of the Living Dead around that same time. And I was always a little scared, but mostly fascinated by all things horror And it wasn't until middle school that I encountered Stephen King's work and Richard Matheson for the Mm -hmm. first time. And that was when I started being like, oh, this isn't just, you know, something that I can see on screen or read in scary stories to tell in the dark. Like there's some real beautiful literature behind all of this. So I continued that passion and that love all through my undergraduate career. But I went to college initially to become a journalist, (laughs) uh, which I'm grateful that I didn't end up doing in the long run. But I had two incredible professors since I was taking so many English courses. I picked up another major in literature and I happened to take two courses one semester. One was about romantic literature. So I read Frankenstein for the first time and I read some of, you know, the original Gothic poetry for the first time. And I was also taking a class with an amazing 
horror author Stephen Graham Jones about zombies. And those two classes really introduced me to the idea that like, these aren't just, you know, scary stories. This is a way to study human culture. Mm -hmm. And that kind of spiraled into my dissertation in grad school. And that's when I fully committed myself to really exploring how the gothic, how horror, and at that point, how the undead have influenced our culture throughout history. That's so that was sort of where my ideas started. And then I kind of got ballsy, I guess the best way to put it, and started branding myself as a monster expert long before I actually had earned the title in grad school and just committed myself to doing it and had the opportunity to cold pitch PBS my idea for Monstrum, which I believe I described something along the lines of, I want to do for monsters what Anthony Bourdain did for food. Um, <laughs> By showing the connections between people and how we're all not that different because we all create these monsters and we all have these fears. And luckily they liked that idea. And more importantly, we've had a really excellent audience response since then. So yeah. now Monstrum has become a monster of its own. And I'm very <laughs> happy to be its you know monstrous mother, I guess is the best way of putting it. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually found your show because I love PBS Eons. Yeah. I was an environmental studies major and I really like geoscience, except mm -hmm. I'm really bad at rocks. I cannot <laughs> identify the different rocks, the life of me. So there's no future for me in geoscience, but yeah. I love dinosaurs and animal evolution, human evolution, all that stuff. So I actually found you through that. There was the episode where it was the Cyclops one or whatever mm -hmm. it was exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, this is super awesome. And I checked it out. And at that point, I was working on a construction site and I was doing nothing most of the day. So I was just like binging it in the car. Yay. Well, thank you. That makes my heart so happy. And yeah, the team at Eons is incredible. And that's one of the things I think that Monstrum really shows within the giant PBS universe and in the world. We have a lot of crossover with a lot of different shows and even opportunities we haven't really tapped into yet. I mean, I've had Joe Hansen on from It's Okay to Be Smart. I've had Eons. We've done The Origins of Everything. It's Lit. And now the new show, Other Words. And I think the reason that Monstrum can sort of cross the line between STEM and humanities is because monsters are so inherently rooted, not just in literature. Like I said, they're a part mm. of human culture in so many ways. And I believe that all literature in general, but all folklore, all monsters, all storytelling is not just about the words on the page or the images on the screen. It's really about the creators behind those texts and who's creating the monster in the first place. And I think the more interesting answer is finding out why those people felt the need to craft these monsters in the first place. So yeah, if that's something like a dinosaur bone that they didn't really understand what mm -hmm. it was and you get Cyclops, or if that's something, you know, just to keep your kids inside at night so they're not running around and getting eaten by God knows what's out there in the woods. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. So I guess sort of on that, but also a little different, Mm -hmm. What's your favorite monster, cryptid, and or mythical creature? And oh if you gosh, have one so for each, feel free. <laughs> really good question. Thank you. I'm glad you asked that distinction because no one ever does. So this is, it's still a hard question. <laughs> I feel like they're all my favorites. <laughs> my heart will always belong to the undead in terms mm -hmm. of monsters in every format from Mononongal to Vricolacas to vampire to zombie. That was my entry point into monsters and into being a scholar was looking at the history of the undead before 1850. And I just love a good reanimated corpse. <laughs> and the rational for me is that unlike a lot of other monsters, 
whatever the undead being is, it was always a living human first. So it's Mm -hmm. very easy to project our fears and very easy to imagine ourselves in the place of that undead creature. And I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from. So the undead would be my favorite monster. Favorite Mm -hmm. cryptid. That's harder for me. Let me think about that one. Oh, duh. Easy. Okay. My favorite is Champ. Champ? Uh, oh, okay. Vermont's, oh, yeah. yeah, Lake Champlain's version of the Loch Ness yeah. monster. We yeah. love Champ. We're, we're a fan. We both live in upstate New York. So, okay. Yep. Yeah. My mom's yeah. from upstate New York. I grew up in South Burlington, Vermont. So, you know, the minor league baseball team we have, oh, yeah. you know. The, um, yeah. Uh, you know, the Lake Monsters are actually changing their name to the Maple Kings. I hate that. They're just purchased by a new owner. I'm no, not a why? fan. Well, there's actually a vote right now. But they've already created Maple King's merch, so I think it's a vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I need to know how I can get my hands on that champ mascot suit because I need yeah. it and wanted it. If you're looking, seriously, I was actually looking at this I other night. They still do have champ oh, merch on sale, but you got to act fast because they're okay. not going to supply it. I'm honest to God, as soon as we get off recording this, I'm going to go try to buy some because I feel like oh, that was I'm- such an integral part of my childhood. I, uh... <laughs> There's a single hat I kind of want to get. It's like the only trucker hat I have. So I'm going to buy that. Just do it. I think I got to buy it. They're running out. Just use me as an excuse to say the monster expert told you you have to buy it. So just do it for posterity. Right it was part yeah. of the job. <laughs> yes. So that would be. would know that about champ merch right now. <laughs> well, I was looking at it the other day. My favorite, they're not even minor league. They're like not even relegated. But my favorite minor league baseball team is the Savannah Bananas. Oh, that's funny. Um, their logo is literally is a banana with the baseball bat. <laughs> I like that. There's but, a local community college here that's the Fighting Artichokes. So <laughs> 10 out of 10 for creativity so on that one. Yes. That's awesome. Oh, just before we get back on track, yeah. fun minor league baseball teams in Norwich, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. They're, I forget if they're AA or AAA affiliate is the Norwich Sea Unicorns. They're narwhals in like, uh, um, like those, you know, it's like yellow raincoats that they wear yeah. on like sh- fishing ships yeah that's their mascot it's awesome i love that oh my god <laughs> that's so fun yeah so champ definitely my favorite cryptid and then favorite mythological creature is a lot harder if i had to go with my first two reactions would pro- my first probably the lamia um what is that yeah what is that yeah so the lamia also known as lilith in some variations i'm referencing like the bible in the old testament the lamia was a woman who was cursed to eat her own children for various reasons throughout mythological history and so she's often portrayed as you know beautiful woman from the chest up but with like lioness body she's kind of one of the original you know monstrous women which as a feminist and someone who works in gender studies always intrigued by but I also have a soft spot for like Pegasus because <laughs> of Hercules. When I was a kid, yeah. I loved Pegasus. Yeah. But on the subject of mythology, I might have a different answer soon. I can't say too much yet, but there might be another channel joining Ooh. the storied network. So if you're interested in myth, definitely stay tuned. I'm interested in some myths for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. Your favorite mythological creature is a woman and that's something that steve and i have always thought about is like why is there no female version of bigfoot yeah is that something you've come across in your studies that's a really good question i think at least the big name you know sort of cryptids that we identify usually are male i mean even champ right champ i'm thinking mm-hmm. like yeti bigfoot mm-hmm. uh, mothman even i think 
there are a couple of reasons why I think that. But in, I'll answer the other question first is female Bigfoots I have seen in recent literature, um, more specifically in Max Brooks' De-Evolution. I highly recommend it. It's a really interesting take on Bigfoot um, <laughs> as a species. But I think from my research and experience, I feel like gendered monsters fall into two camps. Like you're right. It's usually this, you know, usually a singular masculine male figure who is Mm -hmm. always physically threatening in addition to sort of threatening actions. They're usually taller, you know, possess some kind of supernatural power. And I think part of that comes from this coding that we have of, this might be controversial for some of your listeners. I think a lot of the time those male cryptid monsters are based off of animals Mm -hmm. and, you know, misidentification of animals, mutant animals, animals acting out of the ordinary in some way. And then we have female monsters, which I think tend to be more rooted in actual women taking the idea that the patriarchy has of, you know, a beautiful woman or an old woman or a woman that's somehow living outside of societal norm and literally demonizing her by giving her monstrous features. Baba Yaga, Medusa, Lamia would be examples. And there are so many more, right? Like La Llorona. I mean, the list kind of goes on. And that has been one really interesting thing studying global monsters is the idea of the predatory female character pops up in more humanoid form, I would say, than sort of the cryptid, which takes on more animal-esque features. That's not true across the board, right? I mean, there are some, you know, things like sirens that have monster parts too, but still even- Nessie's typically female, right? Yes. That's how I think of the Loch Ness Monster, at least. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's how the general populace thinks of it, but when I hear Nessie, I think female Loch Ness Monster- I can't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say that some of the original names for Loch Ness Monster were actually based on like Scottish male names. Oh. Um, so, so, and then some people will say that, well, the Loch Ness Monster, of course, has no gender because, you know, unlike something Mothman, where literally the gender yeah. is in the name, it's not as explicit. But mm-hmm. even the fact that we feel the need to gender these monsters, fictional monsters, you know, that yeah. don't have ways that we could say that we would be able to tell if they're male or female, um, (laughs) keep it PG, right? I think that's really interesting that we feel the need to gender everything. And I think, again, that goes back to some older societal structures that were in place. So back to Bigfoot. What's your thoughts on like its existence? I'll just give the context for my theory. So last week we did a different episode because we've been doing Mm -hmm. a lot of cryptids and like weird, mysterious stuff. So we talked about the circus and Mm -hmm. I looked into freak shows and particularly- Mm -hmm. There is one of the most, the wealthiest freak show performances was Jojo Dogface Boy. Yep. Who had this condition where his body was covered head to toe in mm-hmm. fur-like hair. So I'm thinking if you have one of those people that's cast away, who's like six, seven, we're already really bad at gauging height. Mm-hmm. Who you just yeah. happen to see walking in the woods naked, just covered head to toe in hair. Like that's Bigfoot. If you look at a picture of Jojo Dogface Boy, uh, yeah, I know exactly he is Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. The ears are not protruding. He has all the humanoid facial features, mm-hmm. but they're just covered in hair. I don't know how feasible that would even be, but I'm just thinking like, if you see someone six, seven in a distance, sort of yeah. hunched over with bad posture because they probably sleep on a rock, that's Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think that's a really interesting theory. And I think you're so right about gauging height at a distance. I know when I was studying Mothman, that was a big thing that people have studied about, you know, was this thing that people saw actually really, really tall or was it just a trick of the eye and probably the latter? It's hard to judge height when in the best of conditions with 20-20 eyesight and, you know, bright light of day, let alone at night or when you're scared and your adrenaline um, (laughs) is starting to kick in. 
I don't, I don't have a, like one particular theory about Bigfoot that I particularly prescribe to, but kind of what you were saying about, you know, a human that had some kind of genetic condition that made them look a certain way that other people seem as monstrous would definitely be one explanation, mm-hmm. right? We love to other people, but I mean, bears, when I did the Yeti episode, I'm fairly confident that was based on bears. Oh yeah. Um, I, yeah. I believe it. Bears and are I think, scary. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that Bigfoot became increasingly tied with Yeti, you know, stories and folklore. Mm-hmm. So I think there's got to be some of the bear thing in there yeah. too. But I don't know. I, people ask me this all the time. They're like, oh, do you believe these cryptids are actually real or these monsters are actually real? And my general response is, who am I to say that they are or they're not? Like, I know I'm the monster expert, but I'm not the eyewitness. Mm-hmm. And until I encounter like that myself, I don't want to discredit someone else's experience. Even, you know, maybe it seems a little out of the ordinary or a little less plausible in some ways. I mean, who am I to say that mm-hmm. someone didn't really actually see Bigfoot? And if they yeah. want to believe that, more power to them. I told this story kind of recently. It's pretty quick, but I did definitely see a jackalope when I was about five or six years old in Utah, but I also definitely didn't see a jackalope because they don't exist. Yes. But yes. when I was little, I found out the jackalope because we were in Utah and I was obsessed with it. And to this day, I swear to God, we're walking to this ghost town and I saw what looked like a jackrabbit with a blue tent and some horns run by. Oh, interesting. But, you know... Yeah, I know it can't be because the jackalope just doesn't make sense. I don't understand how it biologically could happen, but I definitely saw a jackalope. And it's one of those weird things where it's like, I know I definitely didn't see it, but I also Mm. believe I saw a jackalope when I was four. See, that's so interesting because when I moved to Arizona as a kid, I feel like, oh, I saw jackalope too, even though like, of course I didn't, right? It was Mm -hmm. probably just a rabbit that I'm not used to seeing desert hairs and maybe there were some Mm -hmm. sticks behind it. I don't know. Or like the one time I and I swear we saw an alien outside of my parents' house because there was this like, like, I think what we're touching on here is this idea of at least both of our experiences is we have a story that we've heard before. Mm -hmm. And then we see something or think we see something that we can't explain. So I think our brain makes a synapsis where it's like, I have no other way of explaining this thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put this story or this image, this monster in its place because we don't like the unknown. I mean, I think that's where a lot of these monsters come from is we want to be able to not only come up with an archetype or something, but to name it and to even gender it and to make it fit into a box that we understand because that's what we do with everything else in the world. Yeah. It's so easy with false memories to kind of build things up in your head. A few weeks ago, we covered the Kraken. And of course, like big squids exist. Yes, I'm terrified of them. The lore around them is just Mm -hmm. so interesting. And people have kind of built up these stories about, you know, it was two miles long or grabbed my friend off the boat or had these mythical powers. And Mm -hmm. it's just so easy to kind of build up the stories. And especially if they're told over time just so interesting. No, a hundred percent. And I think that's one thing we see in a lot of sea monsters that at least I've researched before. And yeah, I did an episode on the Kraken and I'm was terrified of giant squid and I'm even more so. I don't think (laughs) anything should be that big or have that many suckers. It freaks me out because they have the suckers that have like a spike on them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which is terrifying. On their site, yeah. Yes. So that's such a good instance of when there is an actual living creature that Cause I mean, there's evidence that giant squid that are of huge size that we haven't actually seen with our own eyes have like attacked whales. I mean, they have the scarring from that type mm-hmm. of sucker. In some ways there's evidence for some of these monsters, but yeah. And I mean, especially when we think historically, like you're a sailor, you've been out for God knows how many months, right. You know, yeah. on the ocean, it's dark and you know, maybe it's raining or whatever. And 
you see an octopus or a squid or, you know, a man of war, you see something. And yeah, we want to make it's me. Some of it I think is bravado too, right? We don't want to say like, oh yeah, you know, some kelp got caught around my leg <laughs> and I freaked out and thought I was dying. You want to say like, oh, well, a Kraken definitely grabbed me. Yeah. So I think in yeah. some ways we want to suspend belief because we want our lives to be more exciting than maybe they actually are in some ways or to yeah. not be embarrassed. That's interesting. I mean, sort of in a similar vein, I got really into fishing during COVID just because I decided yeah. to do. And we have a house in Vermont. I spent a lot of time this summer fishing. I would go out at like 6, 7 a.m. and I would get mm-hmm. home at like 4 p.m. Yeah. I'd be deep in the woods. And I mean, you, I was about to say, I don't know if you know what loons are like, but you're from Vermont. So mm-hmm. you know what loons sound uh, like. Yeah. Yeah. They make some of the most horrific noises you can imagine. Yes. Absolutely just, terrifying. I can just imagine the middle of the night, you're in the wilderness hearing mm-hmm. that. Your thought process isn't going to be, oh, there's a loon. It's going to be, okay, there's some sort of demon or ghost or mm-hmm. horrific creature coming to get me. Oh, yes, definitely. And I mean, I'm an angler myself. Um, so I've been in those like early morning fishing excursions. And, you know, here in the Southwest, I haven't heard any loons. But, you know, when it's cold and I clearly I've seen too many horror movies, but I'm always... When I hear, you know, a bush snap and everything's usually dead quiet on these rivers, right? And then mm-hmm. you hear something and I will look and I think like, oh my gosh, is it someone who's going to come and try to like murder us and, you know, do these horrible things? I usually go to that before I go to, you know, Bigfoot <laughs> or a monster, which yeah. probably says a lot about me, but I, no, I think I you're right. Usually. <laughs> yeah, bear. Yeah, bears. Here it's more like mountain lion, which would be terrifying. That's almost scarier. But in some ways, like this is almost a healthy response, even if you think it's a person or an animal or even a monster. I mean, we are inherently animals ourselves. I mean, we have we are we evolved Mm -hmm. from, you know, I think there's some biological memory where we were hunted by giant creatures. And so when, you know, we could still be injured by, you know, things like bears, mountain lions, what have you today. And I think it's kind of healthy to be scared of those things that, you know, go bump in the night, especially when you're in an environment that houses you know, dangerous creatures. That's a question I had for you too. Yeah. Whenever Steve and I do an episode, especially about ghosts, I'm always so freaked out that night and every little sound I'm listening to. So do you get afraid of the monsters you cover? Never, which is weird. And that's different from ghosts, but for me, uh, (laughs) but I think I never get scared of the monsters. I might think they're gross or kind of disturbing some of their characteristics but I think for me and maybe that's one of the reasons why I do it right is that I spend so much time researching that for me it's like I have an explanation for the thing at least in my mind even if you know it's not written about in some text from 13 what hundred or whatever I think that I've been doing this for long enough and I'm like oh of course it has to be some kind of explanation Mm -hmm. so I don't get freaked out about I really don't get freaked out about the monsters at all I really don't get scared of the monsters and I think again because I'm able to distance myself from the story. And because I usually, even if the monsters I study don't have, you know, a worldly explanation, I think that there's usually some societal, cultural, psychological thing going on that helps me recognize. But I was for sure when I was younger. Ironically, I was absolutely terrified of vampires as a kid. And I literally, that was the thing that got me into this. (laughs) Yeah, really? Oh my God. I was so afraid of vampires and werewolves. (laughs) Um, It was genuinely a daily concern. Like, am I going to encounter a vampire or werewolf? Now they don't cross my mind ever, but it's just kind of funny how that happened. Oh yeah. I was, and I think what did it for me was Salem's Lot and the little boy scratching on the window, you know, floating up in the air, trying to get in for what I, 
think that's what got me with vampires. And for an embarrassingly long time, I would sleep with, (laughs) so embarrassing, (laughs) I would sleep facing the window, but I would have my comforter, my covers completely covering my body, except for a hole for my nose so I could breathe. And for like a single eye, because I wanted to know, even though I was still so scared, if I felt something in my room, or even if something was there, I wanted to be able to open my eyes and know it was going to get me. And of course, uh, the covers are going to protect you for of sure. Of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not like I was sleeping with, you know, all the other rumored things you're supposed to help like garlic or anything. No. no. I told this story so long ago on the show, um, like really early on, but I was afraid of werewolves for like the least scary reason. You ever see the what? awful, awful movie, Alvin and the Chipmunks meet the Wolfman? <laughs> I don't think I have, but I hate album in the chipmunks. So oh my God. They're, they're <laughs> I saw like five minutes of it in a blockbuster video when I was like four or five and yeah. it scared me so much that I was actually afraid of werewolves after that. That's, oh my God. And that's so interesting how like the things that, and I feel like it's very common when we catch a single glimpse of something, right? If that's, you know, mm-hmm. a jackalope or if that's one scene from a movie or, you know, one passage in a book. I, again, I think our brain doesn't get the whole thing. So we try to fill in the gaps, I guess. I mean, I've said this multiple times in interviews, but I was also, and still am actually, afraid of sprouting potatoes because of the Archie's Weird Mystery. And I should look up what the title is. It was like Night of the Something. And it was about aliens that came and took over people and turned them into meat puppets through like, but they looked like potatoes, but they would sprout (laughs) these long green, I can't, I can't even talk about it right now. It's freaking (laughs) out. But to this day, that's still... Again, completely inexplicable. I know a sprouting potato is not going to kill me and turn me into a meat puppet, but I still can't touch one. They freak me out. That's so interesting. I mean, sort of similar, like, obviously, I know werewolves don't exist and it doesn't Mm -hmm. freak me out at all. I don't think about it actively, but when I do see a full moon, like, and I'm out and about and taking the trash out or it's like walk my dog or whatever, it is something that's like in the back of my mind. We do have coyotes here, so. Same, yeah. I mean, your coyotes are a lot bigger. I've seen Arizona coyotes. They, yeah. speaking of noises in the night, the first time I remember here, they, to me, they sound like drunk little children laughing, which is terrifying. And then when they get a kill, that's a whole. Oh, they're yips. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you could see how that could create a monster right there. Yeah. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people who belong to like indigenous communities or, you know, who lived out in the woods or live in more rural areas, either now or, you know, hit back in the day. And I think that, you know, the, explanation is always like well of course we'll know that that's the thing that's a normal animal but there's still monsters that exist you know in all these different Mm -hmm. areas and i think maybe that's part of it every single culture across history has had monsters it's about othering so for me a monster is any thing person or creature that is supposed to be scary or has some kind of negative association with it and then an accompanying narrative so it's not just enough to like be scared like oh i saw a giant coyote with big teeth and it scared me that's not a monster it's when there's some kind of you know fictional narrative that's connected and then spread and kind of becomes its own archetype and its own legend i think that's where we get monsters from and so i think that it's not enough for you know one person to see uh abnormal bear or mm-hmm. you know one person to hear an, you know an animal cry that's out of the ordinary or that's altered in some way so it has to be either multiple people or enough people have to listen to that story and believe it and spread it themselves for something to actually become a monster that's so interesting that makes mm-hmm. sense though so i do have a question so we're jumping back 
my least favorite cryptid ever is mm-hmm. the chupacabra. Can you redeem that in any way? I think it's the yes. I just think it's the worst. Like it doesn't. Why? Do Why do you think it's the worst? Well, because it's probably a, a dog with mange. There's just two different versions. Mm-hmm. And look, so I sort of bought it for a bit, and then when people in Maine started seeing the chupacabra, that's when I was like, I'm over it. Yeah, that's more of like the general, obviously Maine, but that's more of the, you know, North South America kind of version of the chupacabra. I mean, the chupacabras Mm -hmm. from Puerto Rico, like the original one, things people forget too about the chupacabras is that it's relatively modern. It started Mm -hmm. in the 80s, which, you know, in terms of monster history is very recent. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't anything like that. I mean, there's tons of theories and I've done an episode about this, but- before there were any sightings of the chupacabra, there was livestock turning up dead with, you know, puncture holes and usually with some blood drained and they mm-hmm. looked not like a traditional predatory animal attack. So that was a thing that came first. And then the Puerto Rican people whose livestock were suffering, then we start getting the eyewitness accounts, then, you know, the rumors. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the chupacabras is less about the actual cryptid looking the way it does. And for me, it's about that it came from a very real thing. I mean, there were people's livelihoods who were destroyed. Like that's not disputable. Mm -hmm. There were dead animals that were popping up for no explicable reason. And at the same time, you had a major political situation going on there as well. So I think in things like, you know, the American Mm -hmm. military intervening in ways they shouldn't have been and doing things to like the land and the people there. So for me, the Chupacabras isn't about the actual cryptid itself. It's about the story behind it. So maybe the redemption of the Chupacabras is that it's not, you know, just a dog with mange. It was actually Mm -hmm. this very much so a mythological figure where the Puerto Rican people who were being directly impacted by some kind of real world event tried to bring attention to the chupacabras then it kind of became a national symbol as well which is fascinating so that's more interesting i just think the cricket itself is not that interesting yeah i mean you see the original i put it in air quotes the original chupacabra sightings you know looked more like little gray men right Mm -hmm. with like you know bigger head gray big red eyes kind of like mothman Mm -hmm. which would suggest right some kind of animal miss sighting Mm -hmm. in that with you know fangs and the first person who made the very popular image of that chupacabras and who like drew a little sketch had seen the movie Species. Yeah, um, I, I so, knew that part of it. Yes, which again, and so people automatically discredit her saying like, well, you know, she made this monster because of that movie, which there's some similarity, but not enough. And like, even if that is where she got the idea for this creature, again, it's human brains see something or experience something that we don't have an explanation for. And I think in a lot of ways, it's less scary to say a monster did it than it is to say that we have absolutely no idea what's doing this thing. Or even maybe it's a human doing it to another person, which is also terrifying. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. (laughs) So something that I noticed that you were talking about earlier was Mm -hmm. about how monsters are very typically scary. My favorite cryptid is the squonk. Have you heard about the squonk? No, I haven't. Tell me. So it's a local Pennsylvania cryptid, northern Pennsylvania. And its whole thing is that it's so ugly and I wish we had a picture up right now. Oh, get one up. <laughs> while you the pictures, please do. <laughs> so its whole thing is that it's so ugly that it doesn't want anyone to see it. And that's oh. why it's been hiding. And if you get too close to it, it just dissolves into a puddle of tears. 
That's so sad and so cute. (laughs) So, I mean, there's all these stories of people trying to hunt the squonk Mm -hmm. and then they capture it and they look bag and it's just tears here's the best image oh my gosh okay (laughs) pulling it up in chat right now oh my gosh i'm so excited for this oh it's so sad and cute yeah isn't it kind of cute though i will say i have a thing for like ugly animals um (laughs) i just think weird animals are so cute and hilarious and deserve their own like i love ostriches i think they're adorable even though they're also prehistoric dinosaurs yeah that's off topic no i think hairless cat (laughs) i'm glad you brought that up though about this idea that not all monsters are scary and that's one of the reasons when i was giving my definition of a monster that i probably should change is it's not just about it's something that's supposed to scare you but more often than not it's just anything that's out of the ordinary and seen as deviant. So seen Mm -hmm. as bad in some way, not necessarily scary. So you could look at that cute Mm -hmm. little squonk guy. I mean, in that picture, at least he's like covered with warts and, you know, feels like you said it it thinks that it's not cute. So it doesn't want to be around people, Mm -hmm. which to me speaks to, you know, obviously a human thing. Like we want people to think we're attractive. We want people to like us. And so maybe it's kind of an amalgamation of that fear of being rejected. So there's still a fear there, but it's Mm -hmm. the creature isn't bad because it's different. We other all of these things. We make them bad or scary or evil because we want usually to be in the position of power over that thing. I don't know if Emmy mentioned it, but it does turn into tears if you capture it. It dissolves into a puddle of tears. Which again is like so sad, but also of course part of the mythology because then it's inherently elusive and you can never actually get one. Yeah, Yeah. That's how it should be. I think that monsters should always be part of our curious imaginations. And I know going back to like jackalope, right? Or even people would say like, oh, this is a unicorn horn. And it was like a narwhal tusk. And they just mm-hmm. didn't know what it was or it was sold by some charlatan as, you know, being part of a monster. And there's actually a really gross history, right? Of people actually putting together animal parts and human yeah. and animal parts and trying to pass them off as monsters. But to me, that's not exciting. I think that mm-hmm. monsters are meant to be on the fringes of society and meant to, you know, haunt the back of our imagination. And we don't want to ever see that thing. I really don't think so. Like in a clear light, because then that would take away the mystery and sort of the beauty from it. But it would also take away our ability to put our own fears upon that thing, Mm -hmm. Um, right? Once we understand something completely, it's harder to see it as you know representing anything other than okay maybe it was just like a bear with mange or like that's not exciting that's not fun and that's the thing i think people forget a lot about horror and about monsters is that they're meant to educate but they're also meant to entertain like this is Mm -hmm. one of the ways i think that we as humans form community is we tell stories stories are integral to being human in my opinion and i think that to take that away would not just be to take away monsters but would be to take away part of who we are as humans so interesting sort of continuation of that point Mm -hmm. and possible if you need monster ideas um (laughs) yes despite me being incredibly white looking i actually am half armenian okay just an interesting little thing as i've looked into trying to find like some sort of armenian like folklore or mythology Mm -hmm. that's interesting something i find so fascinating is there are known like myths and monsters and stuff the problem is the Armenians were some of the first people to convert to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they slashed and burned. They like got rid of all their poems yeah. and destroyed every single like pagan temple and everything. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the tradition was completely lost. 
What's interesting though, is the stuff that they still have, they can piece together because it has a lot of like Greek influence. And then there's a mm-hmm. bunch of random weird stuff. One of the things I did notice, like looking through some of it is mm-hmm. there's not a ton of information about the individual creatures, but a lot of the monsters represent a lot of things you find in other cultures. And I've even mm-hmm. seen on your show, I forget which one it was, but this is one that basically is a evil spirit, I believe, that mm-hmm. attacks pregnant mothers. And I think that's sort of Mon- similar to- yeah. Um, you did an episode recently-ish, I think. Uh, is it the Mononongal? Yeah, the Mononongal. I love the Mononongal. Yeah. She's one of so my favorites. It's yes. interesting because in a way, it sort of reminds me of that where it's like, okay, it's just, I just know it's sort of interesting to see this mythology that how it sort of translates between cultures and how mm-hmm. in some cases, you have this rich folklore tradition that was completely wiped out because everyone converted yep. to a different religion, let's say, and they're like, this is sacrilegious. We're not saving yep. any record of this. And unfortunately, I think that's like common in history, Mm -hmm. which is very sad. Like I'm thinking um, of when I did the episode on the Leshy, which is a Slavic folklore, they were very much a lot of the same slash and burn. I mean, we don't have any pre-Christian Slavic document. Like we don't really have any evidence of, Mm -hmm. you know, the culture and the mythology there when it's kind of been filled in through folklore. And that's why I think oral tradition is so important is because, you know, there's tiny snips and pieces of it or even something like La Llorona right where it was you know this more ancient indigenous goddess and monster and you know mythological creature then Christianity comes and she becomes just pure evil and just kills children and is you know Mm -hmm. this terrible person so that is one thing that I shouldn't have been surprised by it but it definitely still surprises me is how much either monsters changed or mythology and folklore was lost because of colonialism and more likely than not because of the Christian influence in that. But I think that's where resilience comes in for a lot of those communities, right? That were colonized and treated terribly and had so much of their histories erased. The fact that you even talk about that myth, you know, that creature that even though there was, there's not a clear thread that maybe traces Mm -hmm. it in Armenian history or, you know, mythology, you can still look it up and you can still talk about it. So it still lives on. So I think even when a monster changes because of colonization or because of, you know, whatever form of oppression, holding on to it, even in some capacity, to me, I think is a sign of resistance and a sign Mm -hmm. of rebellion. And I think, I guess it's the other part of monsters we haven't really talked about, right? Is that they are figures of power and they can be resisting. And there's a reason why people identify with monsters. It's because, you know, we feel marginalized or othered ourselves in our day-to-day lives. And I know that some, you know, these monsters, I'm thinking like um, Slender Man has become, you know, this sort of figure I know in like the queer community. And it's just so interesting to trace when someone like reclaims a monster, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or it's like the Babadook as well. Yes, the Babadook, yes, which is hilarious. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's an overrated movie. Um, I didn't like it that much. I'm going to be 100 honest with you. I didn't like it. <laughs> I wasn't a fan and I'm probably going to get some flack for that. But no, I wasn't a fan of the Babadook just for a lot of reasons. But yeah. Yeah. So very on point with what, the next question I was thinking Perfect. I want to ask was, so this is sort of a two-parter. We can answer mm-hmm. it whichever you feel like first or if only want to answer one part it's fine how do you see folklore i guess playing overall right now because you know you don't really Mm -hmm. see because i was thinking more like creepypastas that's a 2010 no one really looks at creepypastas and then one of our friends and a fan i guess of the show as well brian weaver of ghost quest okay he asked a question of would you consider conspiracy theories and the rise of that of like QAnon and that stuff sort of in its own right sort of like a modern folklore-ish no no 
No, I don't. Um, and I think maybe you hit me with the wrong example with QAnon, but I'm going to keep yeah. my personal thoughts um, oh, no. I to mean, that to myself. You can say anything negative about QAnon. As long as it's not positive, it's fine on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I have other, you know, well, I'm not going to say too much. And yeah. the reason that I would say to me that hasn't reached folklore status because folklore part of the definition in my mind is tradition. Mm-hmm. So if you talk to me 50 years from now and 20 years from now, even and people are still talking about QAnon and it's still something that, you know, is being shared and changed, then yeah, maybe mm-hmm. I'd see that as folklore. But for me, folklore is based in tradition and based in oral storytelling and written storytelling. And it's about forming a community through generations mm-hmm. or, you know, through more than just one period of time. Yeah. And so for me, I wouldn't consider conspiracy theories folklore. I think that fits like a different niche of our psyche in some ways. But I do think that we've seen a revival of an interest in folklore. Of course, not to say that folklore can't still be present today. Like I would be more inclined to say something like Slenderman mm. or the, is it the SCP Foundation? What is that? Oh, the, um, me do? I, I know you mean like the, that's like a yeah. Wikipedia type page. Uh, yeah, where it's supposed to be like this fictional organization, but people treat it as real. Mm-hmm. To me, that falls closer to folklore, even though it hasn't crossed, you know, maybe like the generational part of the definition but i don't think it's been around long enough for that it hasn't been but to me it's there's i guess a community of imagination and a community of like suspended disbelief Mm -hmm. that they're all sort it's like with creepypasta or like reddit no sleep right is yeah the whole rules of reddit no sleep or you have to treat it like it's real Mm -hmm. and i don't think QAnon fits that people treat it like it's real without acknowledging that there's no possible way that it exists yeah, so without acknowledging that it's fake yeah, yeah exactly that makes sense yeah back to the creepypasta stuff i was thinking another thing that's so fascinating that maybe you could shed some light on is that mm-hmm. so that was a huge in the 2010s mm-hmm. almost all of the really big ones were all like retro video game themed it was like ben drowned or whatever about like zelda oh, i can't even think of the others but they're all like video game themed crystal just- cove yeah, uh, yeah. was another one yeah yeah no, I think, uh, are you asking why I think that like, there was, why, guess, that was like the trend? You, from your expert position of authority on this, what do you think like the reason that in 2010, the transition was mm-hmm. away from a scary monster, like a slender man, let's say, who's going to get mm-hmm. you versus I found this cursed cartridge that someone died in or like the pallet <laughs> town, like makes you kill yourself or whatever. Yeah. And well, in some ways I think it has to do with the Mandela effect, which I don't know enough about the psychology of why, you know, we have that. We talked I was about one of the Berenstein Bears people. I was yeah. like, what? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. I was too. Uh, we yeah, talked Berenstain. What is that? Yeah. No, but I think with the creepypasta, you're right. And like this, I think it comes back to nostalgia mm-hmm. where I think in an increasingly modernized world and in a world that's so driven by science and things like the technology of video games is absolutely insane now. And like the quality of television and like CGI graphics, I think in some ways we, again, want to be back in that disbelief space where we want to believe that, oh, maybe when technology was different, you know, when Mm -hmm. it was not as advanced that this thing could have slipped through the cracks. So I think part of it is nostalgia. And I'd be very interested to know about the age of the people who are engaging in this, because most of the time it's people who could say, who were born in that time period where that, you know, old video game or that old show was supposed to take place. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, again, I think it's about forming community because this is all happening online and monsters and folklore have changed in some ways, I think because of the internet where we're being, I mean, definitely it helps my job. I'll tell you that. I mean, the fact that I can access records and museums and experts across the globe would 
never have happened 50 years ago in the way I can do it now or even 10 years ago. So part of me, I think, is this maybe a pushback against the advancement of technology, but still wanting to find a sense of community on the internet, even if that is a global community, right? Is like finding those like-minded people who are like, yes, of course, I remember that video game too. Or I always felt weird after I played it. And again, that goes back to the, sh- the story <laughs> sharing that I think is so foundational to monsters, to folklore and to humans. So I think it's just an example of we have a new technology that we're still playing around with and maybe people are resistant to that. Maybe people are you know, looking for a better time. You could also make parallels to that, right, with the political environment in the 2010s as well. That I think, again, it's this idea of wanting to go back to something that was, even if that is through a scary thing, it's still nostalgic in my mind. And the internet too makes it just so much easier to find those communities. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking the Area 51 thing that happened last summer where there's just sort of a resurgence of that. So Mm -hmm. even being able to find about these monsters across different cultures. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. And that's why I'm really grateful for the platform that I have with PBS and the fact that, I mean, Exhumed was a national broadcast, which was amazing and a dream come true in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But I love one of the things I'm so passionate about. And one of the reasons why I approached PBS is because I believe in their mission of bringing education to everyone, that there shouldn't be a paywall or some other kind of barrier that stops you from knowledge. Mm -hmm. And if I've learned anything from Monstrum is that there are so many smart people out there that want to learn more. And I think that we're doing a disservice when we don't speak to those people. And like I said, I wanted to do for Monsters what Anthony Bourdain did for food. So I would hope that by being on the internet and by doing global monsters and trying to cover all different communities and facets of history and places in time, that I'm helping people forge those bonds or at least making them feel like it's possible to, you know, connect with another fan of the show or another person who belongs to the community of wherever that monster came from, or even to like your ancestor or to some part of history. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, one of the overarching goals of the show. So before we let you go, I have a quick question because you had a poll on there about an episode about a wisp of will. Will of the wisp. Will the wisp. Okay. Well, that explains why I couldn't find it. <laughs> wisp is a Pokemon move. There's a lot of names for it. So I'm yeah. surprised that so, was one of them. What the heck is it? I had no idea what it was. I tried yeah. to find videos of it. And I couldn't find a video. And you guys, you didn't make the episode. So I have no idea what they are now. Yes. Well, you'll have to watch it to get the whole thing. Um, But the general belief is the will of the wisp is... It appears in legend and folklore from like Northern Europe to Australia, which is a mm. huge range. Yeah. Um, and it's this blue flame or this blue floating light that most often, if not always, appears in marshy areas like bogs, peats, swampland, peat field, swampland. And I mean, people documented it from at least the 1300s of, you know, seeing these lights and they're associated in some cultures with being positive, like, ooh, it marks treasure or you're going to have good fortune. But nine times out of 10, it's, you know, a trickster or a sign of danger. It's going to try to lure you to a watery grave. So I looked at the history of that. And then there have been many, many, many scientific attempts to explain what exactly the will of the wisp is. And I'll let your listeners watch the episode to find (laughs) out which one I prescribe to. But some of the options are bioluminescent owls, glow worms. Yeah, St. Elmo's fire. Are there bioluminescent owls? Technically, yes. 
I guess platypi are also bioluminescent. So. Yeah, platypi are just platypi, right? I mean, they could yeah. be monsters in their own right, and they I mean, were thought to be monsters, but yeah. that's a whole other. That's a whole yeah. other thing. I, I, okay, just t- side no, but bioluminescent owls, real yeah. quick, is essentially that there's a bacteria that can grow in their feathers that can appear at night. Uh, it's bioluminescent and produces a glow. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Stranger than fiction. Yes, that's what I yeah. love about nature. Again, going back to like the kraken and giant squid, sometimes it doesn't take a lot for our imaginations to construct a fantastical or monstrous creature based on real life things in nature because nature is absolutely wild. Well, I think that's a pretty natural place for us to wrap up. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a good time. So where can people find you? The best place to find Monstrum is to go to YouTube to the storied channel where you can subscribe and make sure you're staying up to date with all Monstrum things. Some of our episodes are also available on pbs.org. And if you want to make sure you're knowing the latest and greatest about Monstrum and about everything I'm doing, new shows, new projects, you can follow me on Twitter at Zarka Emily. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much. All right, Steve, I think you're really going to like this one. Just seems right up your alley. All right. So this is the Mononongle, and I'm going to tell you what the word Mononongle means, and I want you to guess what this monster is. So the word Mononongle comes from the Tagalong word Tanangal, which means to remove or to separate, which likely translates to remover or separator, loosely translated as one who separates itself. So it pulls its body apart or something? Sort of. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of hard to guess. Or does it like separate itself? Maybe it's socially awkward. So in social situations, it separates itself to get away. Social distancing. Yeah. It's like Bigfoot. (laughs) doesn't like social interactions, so you just social distancing for a long time yes you kind of got it the first time so it's this woman she looks like a normal woman during the day and can just mm-hmm. blend in with the rest of the society could be me oh my god you're admitting you're a mononongle i'm not confirming or denying oh wow <laughs> so at night she grows wings And her top half of her body separates from the bottom half of her body. And just her top half can fly around. Her whole thing is that she's basically a vampire. Perhaps it's two in one. Remember those cryptids in, I think, Santa Fe or whatever that are just giant pair of walking pants? Yes. (laughs) Well, that's actually not too far because what happens is her top half flies away, but her bottom half just stays where it is standing there Mm -hmm. and i got a lot of this information from dr z's video and also did some of my own background research so it might be a little bit different from her video but go check out her video on pbs monstrum about the mononongle because she obviously knows a lot more about this yeah we'll link to that in the description yes but if you guys want more information definitely go check out her youtube video so bottom half is standing up and she definitely doesn't want to put that somewhere where you could see it because Mm -hmm. if you see it what you can do is put salt garlic or ash on top of the torso and then she won't be able to find it and if she doesn't find it by morning time and reconnect herself then she dies so that's how you defeat a mononongle so you gotta always have some garlic ready to go 
Yeah, exactly. It's not like she can't reattach herself. It's like she just can't find it. Well, she can't reattach herself because she doesn't know where the second half of her body is. Ah, because I was thinking like you could put like some saran wrap or something around it and, then, <laughs> and she tries to attach she it. She just can't, yeah. It just doesn't. It just slides right off. <laughs> if the sun comes up and she's still not attached, then she dies. Okay, so it's like a vampire in that way where the sun lights her on fire. Maybe. I don't know if they light on fire, but you know, like do vampires light on fire or do they just like melt? I think they might light on fire. I don't know. I'm not positive. I think they might light on fire too. We haven't done a vampire segment. We haven't. We haven't done werewolves either. We should do that at some point. They're just so big. It's hard to tackle something like that. I know. Maybe we say that for a spooky season. Yeah. If you see a Mononongle in the night, she will probably have wide eyes and wild hair. And her teeth turn into fangs and her fingers turn into sharp claws. Wow. Just kind of turns into the whole monster thing with wings and can fly around. So she's half bat, half human almost. And she is thought to mostly prey on sleeping women, in particular pregnant women. And this Mm -hmm. part's kind of gross. So she uses her tongue. She has like a really long probe tongue. It's like a mosquito. (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually part of her origin story, according to Dr. Z, maybe. So she has this very long tongue that she can stick down your throat. Oh, God. And eat you from the inside and or eat a fetus. I was not expecting that. When I was thinking mosquito, I thought it was going to be like a bite, but not down your throat. No. So that part of it is thought to maybe help explain things like miscarriages for people who had a miscarriage and had trouble understanding it. It explains the unexplained. Exactly. And then the mosquito part is because this is from a certain part of the Philippines where they had a shit ton of mosquitoes. So Mm. that might be where the weird proby tongue comes from. Interesting. And she's also thought to prey on newlyweds or couples in love. And apparently part of her backstory is that she was left at the altar. So grooms-to-be are one of her favorite so she not target people who are in loveless marriages i don't know that's a good question (laughs) couples in love yeah (laughs) but she avoids anyone who's in a loveless marriage that's very nice of her yeah oh they're just together for the kids i'm not gonna make their lives any worse i mean maybe it would make their life better i don't know i think it depends on how bad your loveless marriage is (laughs) a few other things to note about her in addition to You know, you can spread garlic or salt or ash on her torso. She's afraid of a few things. Daggers, which me too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid of a dagger. I'm also afraid of daggers. Light, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Vinegar, spices, or the tail of a stingray, which, quote, can be fashioned as a whip. (laughs) I mean, tail of a stingray is terrifying. Freshwater stingrays kill so many people in the Amazon every year. Especially if you had a tail of a stingray as a whip. Oh, I know. I mean, those barb, I mean, they, they killed Steve Irwin. RIP. I know. What a shame. His kids are doing great things, though, now. Yeah. I, think I one used of them- to love watching him growing up. I did, too. We actually follow all of them. On- I don't know if you have noticed, but we do follow his <laughs> family on Twitter. <laughs> 
No, I remember watching what's his daughter's name? Bindi or Bindi Irwin. I think she's pregnant now. Really? All right, hold up. Let me check Twitter. We follow them. I'll know in a second. Yeah, she had her baby. Oh, I remember when she was a baby. Literally. DM is. We're not that old. We're old enough to hypothetically have had an infant. How old is she? Hey, I just sent you the tweet. I'll look how old Bindi Irwin is. She's two years younger than us. Oh, wow. She's 22. Jeez. Bindi. It's Australia, though. They don't live as long. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I think her husband took her last name, but I don't think that's true, actually. I think he didn't change his last name. I just imagine she didn't change her last name to Powell because I imagine uh, Bindi Irwin is better brand recognition. Yeah. The fact that both of us knew her name off the top of our heads. That is for brand recognition alone. You cannot change your last name. Apparently he's a professional wakeboarder. Really? So. I know everyone in Australia has like a fake job. They either wrestle alligators, they wakeboard. I wish I worked at a zoo. There's a lot of pictures of him with animals. You kind of have to. You're the crocodile hunter's children. So you kind of have to. It's crazy though that she's 22 and has a baby. Well, good for her. She looks doing well they also live a very different life than us i'm not even just being from australia being the son of steve Irwin, i mean they probably went to school but who knows if they even needed to because they just got into the family business right away so they were living life a little bit younger than we were they had a covid wedding march 25th 2020 that's tough yeah oh that sucks really tough but wasn't it not too bad in australia early on I think they just really shut down. That's definitely what happened in uh, in New Zealand. All okay. right, let's get back on track here. I just put down my notes because I forgot what we were actually talking about. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, this is something interesting that I forgot to mention. So how you turn into a mononongle. So any woman can turn into a mononongle. So to become one, you have to eat a black baby chicken. Very and- avoidable. Right? It seems very avoidable. A, why would you do that? But apparently, if you eat a black baby chicken, there's one way to cure you, but you have to do it quickly. Mm -hmm. And you have to be tied upside down to a tree, spinning around until she throws up the bird. Do you eat it on purpose or does someone serve it to you because they're an asshole? No, it's a good question. I don't know. Here's maybe one part of it is mononongles are often families might have one mononongle. And then when that mononongle dies, then another one will become one. Oh, it's a family tradition. Like yeah, a family it's like a rite of passage. So the black chick is typically passed from one to her next family member. It's like a family heirloom or like a tradition. Exactly. But there can only be one. Mm-hmm. So the mononongle can't die if there is a living chick in her body, unless that chick is transferred to another member of the family. Wait, 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 wait. The chick is living inside of the mononongle? Yes. Sorry, I did not do a good job of explaining this. She eats the chicken. So she eats it like whole. She doesn't like, it's yeah, not cooked. She, the whole thing. She swallows a chicken. Yes. Okay. But it's a chick. The baby yeah. chick swallows a chick and it lives inside of her. And that's what makes her a monster because the chick is hungry. 
it needs to eat. When she has her little proby thing and sucks stuff up, it's going to the chick. Oh, so she's not even eating. It's the little chick that's eating. That's what I'm thinking. So, I'm ch- the, so the black chicks are the parasites, basically. Yes. But yes. you're choosing to eat it and become a mononongle. Yes. And then when one mononongle loses her chick, then it's passed to the next. How do they lose the their chick? Day. Either if you spin upside down or I think if you die. Oh, and then does that chick die and does get a brand new one? No, I th- I think the chick is transferred from family uh, member to family member. Interesting. So it's like a pet. Yeah, that lives inside of you. Yeah. Turns you into a vampire. You know, vampires in Western tradition live forever as long as they eat garlic, get stabbed or burned in the sun. Mm-hmm. Or I guess touch a cross either. Is it something similar like that where the mononongle lives forever if it doesn't get got? I think so. I mean... What I read from this one website was that she cannot die if there is a living chick inside of her body. But I don't really understand how that makes sense with her reattaching to her lower half. Maybe it's like blood loss? Maybe not reattaching her to her lower half is like the one way to truly kill a Mononongo. Yeah, maybe. It's like it's a stabbing vampire in the heart. Yeah, let's see. Oh, and interestingly... Mononongos are often accompanied by something called a tick-tick bird. You can look up a picture of it. Let's see. Is it T-I-C-K, T-I-C-K? T-I-K-T-I-K. Like TikTok, but both eyes. No talk. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I have a long snout. Yeah, they're really weird looking, right? They're kind of ugly. So apparently these birds have really strange calls. And the whole idea is that the calls will distract the victim and confuse them so the mononongle can go in and eat, eat their them. shit up. <laughs> wow. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it is. And the last thing I have to say about the mononongle, which I think you would like, Steve, is that she appears in a few low-budget films, including the film Mononongle, appropriately uh-huh. named, which is the world's first ever filipino horror movie oh really it's the first ever filipino horror movie that's interesting mm-hmm. might have checked that out but it might also not be in english before i was like oh that would be a great one for us to watch but now i'm thinking we might not be able to understand yeah <laughs> we gotta watch another like awful movie though perhaps we have to stumble upon them but we can't do them all the time because we're not a movie podcast but like once in a while we need to get a really bad film yeah they're fun so that's the mononongle i think she's pretty cool Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how there are vampires in, I don't know about every, but in a lot of different folklores. We have all the Western. This is sort of like a vampire. I bet there's something in Asia. I don't know about the Americas though, but it's an interesting trope of like a bloodsucker. Maybe it's just a way to explain, I guess not miscarriage. This is a very specific example of miscarriages, but who knows? No, but it's an interesting thing. I wonder where that fear comes from. I mean, the one that's really fascinating that I tried to look into, but it just ended up being something I wasn't that interested in, was the fact that there are legends of dragons all over the planet. We have them in Western culture, the Americas, Africa, Asia, I think pretty much everywhere. Kind of Uh, is very interesting. Dragons all over. And they all like, they don't all share characteristics, but they're similar. So a lot of early civilizations had some kind of space person, Mm -hmm. like an alien. 
which I guess isn't that crazy. Like you look up at the sky and thinking like, what's up there, you know? Yeah, but- I don't subscribe to all ancient aliens theories that they have, but I think it is interesting to think about it. It kind of makes sense that they all exist because you can't really explain the freak weather, like droughts, hurricanes, thunderstorms. And you look up at the stars and you see all these crazy planets and stuff. And it doesn't seem that crazy to have like a god from space or something that came down to earth. And like also meteors, meteor strikes. I mean, it could be aliens, right? I'm not going to say it wasn't, but I don't really buy that theory. No, I think it would be fun. And maybe I'll do this for next week's episode or something to actually dig into the ancient aliens theory and just cover it from a... I'm just interested to hear what the... I don't know if it's any good. I actually have been seeing this in my recommended on YouTube, some video. It's like 20 minutes long called the history of the world, according to ancient aliens. So I imagine it's a super mm-hmm. cut of all the bonkers stuff he said. Yeah. That might be a useful resource. <laughs> no, I feel like that would be really interesting one to cover. I think that would be pretty fascinating. Okay. I also have a question about vampires for you that you all might right. not know the answer to. So vampires are whole thing, right? Is they have those fangs. Mm-hmm. And they stick them into your neck and suck your blood. Yeah. But are they sucking through their teeth? This is what I never understood. That's an incredible question. I have absolutely no fucking idea. Are they just like stab you and then like suck that up with their mouth? That's pretty nasty. <laughs> in the comedy TV show, What We Do in the Shadows, which is the uh-huh. vampire show, uh, they always bite in like the jugular. That makes a huge mess. They had to. So they're wearing a napkin to try and do it and they just put their mouth over like the blood. But I don't think that's how they do it in like traditional thing. That's a really good point. I just never really understood the logistics of vampires. Do they have suckers in their fangs? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I like what we do in the shadows interpretation where it makes a gigantic mess all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> just trying to like drink the blood. But I don't know. I mean, the other thing I don't really understand with vampires is they can either just drink people's blood and kill them or turn them into vampires. But I don't really understand how they decide what is required to make a vampire. I thought if you got bit by a vampire, you just turned into a vampire. No, there's like more to it. My point is when vampires kill someone, they don't always turn them into another vampire. So I think there's a little more to it. I don't really know the lore behind it, but I think it's something to do with because they there's some people they eat and there's some people they turn to vampires. You don't want to just turn every single person into a vampire. Like they feed off some of them. I think there's something, I don't really know the lore that well, but I'm pretty sure there's something where it's like they have to, there's a process for turning a vampire. Like they bite you and then they make you drink blood or something to turn you into a vampire. There's like a hazing. Yeah, it changes. Initiation. Because you don't want to turn every single person into a vampire. Because if you have an enemy, you don't want them to be a vampire because then they will be your vampire enemy. I guess. I don't know. I think vampires are also undead, right? Yeah, they are undead. There was something I saw. I can try and pull it up, but some statistician pretty much has mathematically proven that vampires don't exist based on the fact that we'd all either be vampires or dead by now if vampires existed. Funny. Here we go. So legend has it that vampires feed on human blood and once bitten, a person turns into a vampire and starts feasting on blood of others. So... I cannot pronounce this guy's last name. I'm sorry if you're somehow a listener, but I don't think you are. On January 1st, 1600, the human population was 536,870,911 people. And if the first vampire came into existence that day and bit one person a month, 
there would have been two vampires by February 1st, 1600. A month later, there would have been four and so on. In just two and a half years, the original human population would have all become vampires and there'd be nobody left to feed on. If mortality rates were taken into consideration, the population would disappear much faster. Even an unrealistically high reproduction rate couldn't counteract this effect. In the long run, humans cannot survive under these conditions, even if our population were doubling each month. And doubling is clearly way beyond the human capacity to reproduce. Okay, well, I... I have two questions. Yeah. How many vampires did he start with in this model? Like, what if there so, was two vampires? So it's one vampire on January 1st. Let's say that each vampire bites one person a month, right? Okay. So January 1st to February 1st, you have two vampires. And then February 1st to March 1st, you have four vampires. So every <laughs> month, the amount of people are turning to vampires doubles, right? Doubles. And at the time there were only 500 million and change people on the earth on earth and 1600. And that's not factoring the mortality rate. So basically by the two year mark, every single person on the planet would have been turned into a vampire. So the vampires have died out because they have nothing to feed on. Interesting. I mean, you don't know how often they eat. We don't. I mean, I do not think that vampires are real, but it seems very unlikely. Because my question was going to be, what if, it's possible that just you and I aren't vampires, but everyone else is. That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> I mean, if that's the case, getting all the vampire movies out there is lying to us. Maybe vampires like love Christianity and love the cross and they're like, oh, it's so scary. And they, they love garlic. Maybe they cook with garlic. No, they're just, just like normal people, but sometimes drink blood. So like the Twilight vampires? Yeah. I've never actually seen Twilight. I saw it a long time ago. They're all sparkly and stuff. I watched a lot of Teen Wolf. Did you ever I, watch that? No, I did not watch it, but I actually saw that. Uh, I think the guy who played like the dad in it passed away the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. I was just obsessed with it because it came out when I was in middle school and it was all these guys playing lacrosse with their shirts off <laughs> and then at night he'd like turn into a vampire it was so bad <laughs> it was so bad that's actually pretty funny though but that'd be so inconvenient how do you just function if you have to go to school and then you have to be up all night in zero hours of sleep but it, only when there's a full moon i meant the vampire part but the full moon thing would suck <laughs> like every time there's a full moon you just have to like Oh, now I'm turning into a werewolf. Uh-oh. Not again. That time of month. You have to actually plan it out. Like, you have to wear clothing you don't like, or you have to strip down first. Otherwise, you rip your clothing. It's just a mess. I feel like that would be the least of your problems. Well, I mean, if once a month you're ruining an outfit, I get, I get that costly. That's true. That's 12 outfits a year that you're losing. So think about that. How much money? That's a minimum of like two, 300 bucks right there that you're blowing a year. Here's my question for you, Steve. If you were a werewolf and you knew that you were going to turn into one every full moon, what would you do on the full moon? Do I have control over myself or am I going crazy like a werewolf does? You're going absolutely crazy. But like, what would you do before to prepare yourself so you don't hurt anyone? I'd probably purchase a cabin in a very remote area in the woods and then... Mm -hmm. The one issue with that, though, is if I, like, wake up in the random place and on my cell phone or GPS, I'm fucked. Yeah, and there still could be someone around. There could, but I don't know. Maybe I'd lock myself in somewhere. Because I was thinking I would get myself 
an underground bunker. I was actually going to say that, like a doomsday bunker. Yeah, like a doomsday bunker that only locks from the outside and someone would just have to open it for me. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. But you would have to tell one person. It'd be one trustworthy person or they might shoot a silver bullet. Yeah. Might get got. If it got into the wrong hands. I could see that being a movie like the wrong person knows and opens up the bunker. A really fun movie, actually, going on to B-movies about wolves is there's a movie, Wolf Cop, that I watched when we were in college. It's great, actually. Premise is that there's this cop who gets bitten by a werewolf. He's like an alcoholic, and he gets bitten by a werewolf and becomes the wolf cop. (laughs) And he has to fight crime as a werewolf. And he's just like... He's he's just like... He starts off as like a normal alcoholic cop on the full moon. He becomes the wolf cop and he fights crime as a werewolf. It's a great movie. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's really good, actually. It's just reminding me of the Geese Bumps episode we watched. (laughs) Wolf wolf skin. What was it called? Werewolf skin. Oh, my God. That was so funny. That was really fun. Heard that episode. You should check that out. Yeah, we can link to that actually in our uh, in the episode notes. Why not? That was a really fun time. If you like the Goosebumps at all, you should check out the Goosebumps podcast. They're great, really fun. They're people. A lot of fun. We had a ton of fun on their show. So do you want to start closing out the episode? Let's do it. All right. So here's a five star review. Oh yeah, you have a working phone now, so you're gonna do the next one. I got it this week though. This one is titled WTCC Podcast Review from March 3rd, 2021 by Big DWTCC Podcast. This show absolutely rocks. The back and forth banter is excellent. I enjoy knowing I'm not the only podcaster that hates my own voice. The sense of humor is right up my alley. Emmy and Steve bring a great energy and it's cool to see another sibling duo (laughs) casting in pods. Steve's response to the mongoose is the response I get from my brother constantly. Overall, great show with great host, fan for life. I imagine he's referencing our uh, Talking Mongoose one. Yes. Canonically, where are we now? Try to change the canon because we're not actually siblings, but where are we going to leave it this week? And thank you for the review, by the way. Yeah, it's nice to get reviews from other podcasters. So, okay, we got to be canonical here. What's our canon? Last time I think we left it that we were identical twins separated at birth. Uh, (laughs) Where should we leave it now? I'm thinking... Or actually a weird genetic experiment gone wrong that escaped from a lab. And the only discernible skill they taught us was podcasting. We actually were both grown in a lab. They're trying to make a genetically superior swordfish and it split off into two podcasters based on New York. I was, I was thinking like you were a clone of me, but they only used my pinky toe or something. Whichever you guys prefer can be canon. We can, or it's a couple Marlins, you know, just chilling in the sea chatting about Bigfoot, you know, it's a couple Marlins. You guys don't even know what we look like, so. For all you know, we could be Marlins. I mean, apparently none of our fans are artistic because you guys aren't drawing us stuff, but if you want to draw us as two Marlins podcasting, that'd be entertaining. Maybe people think that we're siblings because we sign all of our stuff like Emmy Misfit and Steve Misfit. Oh, that? I just did that because I want to put our last names. That's really funny. Imagine if our last name is actually Misfit. That'd be really funny. That would be really funny. <laughs> Maybe that's the story we go with. Maybe. Okay, you guys, I'm going to leave all this in. You guys can choose whichever backstory you'd like. Next time someone says that we're a sibling duo, we're going to call this something brand new. So look out for that. <laughs> all right. So where can people find us, Emmy? So you can visit our website at misfitsandmysteries.com. That's where you can sign up for the newsletter, the blogs, find the latest episodes. 
etc. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at podcast underscore misfits. We are also on Facebook, which I'm not forgetting this time. <laughs> um, I think it's just just type in Misfits and Mysteries podcast. That should come up. Yeah, you'll find us. <laughs> and same thing on YouTube. Misfits yeah. and Mysteries. And I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's probably it. Oh, I mean, I guess I forgot to say this at the beginning, but if you like our show, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. And we might just read it out loud. Yeah, we might just read it. And it, we'll definitely read it out loud if you take a shot at guessing what Steve and my origin story is. Yeah. Or if you invent one that's better than what we came up with, we will use that one. Yes. All right. Well, stay spooky, misfits. Stay spooky. Bye, guys. Bye.